I'm gonna invite Bruce Turner up here. Um, for those of you who don't know Bruce, Bruce has led our biblical education classes for this past year and done a phenomenal job. Anybody in here that went through the Bib Ed classes this last year? He, he killed it. Um, I know there's more of you in here that went through those. Uh, but Bruce is a, a professor at um, both at Moody Seminary and he does some stuff with Western Seminary. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and um, an amazing dude and him and his wife, Cindy, have been such a blessing to our church. So without further ado, would you guys give it up for Bruce Turner this morning? <laughs> Thank you. What a privilege it is to be here with all of you. This is a packed Sunday, isn't it? Yeah, my wife and I, Cindy, have been out here from, uh, moved out here from Dallas, Texas, uh, to Coeur d'Alene about a year ago to be near our son. So my wife, Cindy, just raise your hand real quick. And then my, our son, Kyle, and his family. Many of you know them. They've been here for about five years. And our daughter, Bethany, raise your hand. She's actually, she and her family live upstairs in our two-story house. So we're just privileged to be together with family. We have two other children that are uh, elsewhere, but um, they're thinking about moving to Coeur d'Alene as well. Um, some of you may remember uh, praying for Bethany and Glenn as they awaited the birth of their son, Colton, who was diagnosed with congenital heart disease. So we're just um, praising God that he's doing well and um, God's hand is upon him. Um, you may remember last Sunday, July 4th, uh, we had family members visiting from out of town, and we were all wearing tie-dye shirts, maybe the red, white, and blue. Uh, maybe you recognize this at that time. Well, we had no doubt that God brought us here to Coeur d'Alene, but my wife and I did not have jobs at the time, and God has graciously provided us work. Um, my wife's an ER nurse at the Multicare in North Spokane, and then most recently at Kootenai Hill. Um, and I've been privileged to teach uh, Bible and theology courses at, uh, as Chris said, Moody uh, Aviation and also the Master's Seminary in Spokane. From our first Sunday, we arrived at Anthem, which is where Kyle and Jenny were going. We just felt right at home. Um, we got connected immediately in some uh, rooted uh, community group and got to know people. And, um, and as Chris mentioned, we started working with some of the Bible training, the equipping classes here at Anthem to help people better understand their Bibles and also to see the big picture, the storyline of Scripture. Several months ago, um, uh, my household came down with COVID-19. And so over the last couple of months, I've had, uh, I've experienced a lot of low energy and uh, low motivation. I've had a lot of rest and um, for me, it's kind of lingered on. And so I also entered into a season of kind of struggling with some questions and fears and doubts. I'm still working through it. What's really interesting to me is that um, I chose this text that we're going to be looking at, Numbers 13 and 14, before that season started. And it's really about trusting God and his character and his word in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of crises. And I trust that as we walk through this passage, that it will encourage you, it will challenge you, uh, to remain, to keep, can you all hear me? To keep our focus on who God is and um, as we go through difficult times and to step out in faith for the adventures that he has in store for us. So I'd like to pray for us as we uh, enter into this time looking at God's word together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and of serving you and of getting to know you better. We just ask, Lord, that uh, you would guide during this time 
you would help us to see you and your word, that we would um, continue to entrust ourselves to you and continue to move toward the adventure that you have in store for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what your word is telling us and that we will be quick uh, to follow you, Lord, into the future. God, we know that your Holy Spirit is working. We pray for our hearts to be moldable, to be submissive to your will. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead with those pictures. Um, picture this. Eric Volley, a professional photographer dangling from a, by a nylon rope on a 395-foot cliff in Nepal. Nearby on a rope ladder is a Gurung man, Mani Lal, doing what he had done for decades, hunting honey. Here in the Himalayan foothills, the cliffs shelter massive honeycombs of the world's largest honeybee. Within a moment, go to the next slide here, thousands of them are buzzing around, oh sorry, go back. Thousands of them are buzzing around both men. Lal, a veteran of hundreds of such attacks, is calm, but not so Mr. Volley. Describing that moment in National Geographic, he said this, there were so many bees, I was afraid I might freak out, but I knew that if I did, I would be dead. So I took a deep breath and relaxed. Getting stung would be better than finding myself at the bottom of a cliff. He overcame his fears and won a photo competition for his valiant efforts. Two men, totally different reactions to a crisis based on their perspective and experiences. Well, you know buzzing happens, whether it's in the Himalayan foothills or on summer vacation, shopping in downtown Coeur d'Alene or even in your own household. Crisis situations arise. We're tempted to panic, to freak out, to bolt, think of the worst case scenario or take a deep breath, stay calm and face our fears head on. That word crisis has two sides to it, doesn't it? The side of danger, risk, loss, and fear. And the other side is that critical turning point when something begins to change. It could mean adventure. It could mean gain, courage, and excitement. Years ago, I read a book by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. Many of you have read that book. And he made this uh, statement. Anytime God leads us to do something that has God-sized dimensions... You, it demands that you make a decision. You must decide what you believe about God. How you respond will determine whether you go on to be involved with God in something God-sized that only he can do or continue to go your own way and miss out on what God has purposed for your life. Well, we're going to take a look here in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So if you would turn your Bibles or your phone or watch up on the screen, we're going to be looking at Numbers 13 and 14 through 14, 10. And most of the time, we're just going to be reading the scripture, and I'll be making a few comments, and then really dial in at the end on the lessons that we have to learn here, or a lesson that I've been learning here. The people of Israel are about to find out what it looks like to go on God's mission. Numbers 13, chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And then it gives a list of names from verses 4 through 16. So this is the investigation. This is a surveillance mission that they are called to go on. 
So they're beginning to see what God has in store for them as they spy out the land. 12 spies, 40-day mission. Just to give you a brief, brief background on this land, it's something that, as God said here, I am giving to the people of Israel. Years ago, many, many years ago, hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, God made a promise to Abraham that he would give to his descendants this land, this promised land of Canaan. And although it was ultimately by God's initiative and strength, Abraham and his descendants were called to walk step by step, to take hold of these promises by trust and obedience. Fast forward some thousands of years, the Lord reiterated his promise to, in his call to Moses. He said to Moses in Exodus 3, I've come down to deliver them, Israel, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up um, out of this land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Through a series of plagues, God brought his people out of Egypt, rescued them from Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea, and through the wilderness, he guided them, he protected them from foreign entities, he sustained them with manna and water from a rock. At Mount Sinai, he gave them his instruction about how to live as his people, how to have their sins atoned for through sacrifice, and to approach him in worship through feasts and through the tabernacle. Two years after leaving Sinai, they finally arrive at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran, an oasis in the wilderness, the southernmost tip of the promised land. And you can see on this map here that we put, put up here um, that this is the southernmost, Kadesh Barnea is the southernmost part of this land. They're about to enter in, and we'll see more of this map in just a minute. This served as a crisis point. All that they had heard about for thousands of years as God's people, they're about to explore and about to enter into. The land they had dreamed of lay before their eyes. This served as a crisis moment, a crossroads in Israel's history. They have to decide whether they'll follow God's lead and enter the land or go their own way. The assignment is found in verses 17 through 20. This is what the spies were supposed to do. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who, live, who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they live in are in camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of, be of good courage and bring back some fruit of the land. Now the time of the season was for the first of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rechob near Lebo Hamah. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Achimon, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. So what was their specific assignment, just kind of reviewing here? They were to travel through the land of Canaan, through the Negev and the hill country. They were to assess the condition of the land, the people in the land, and the cities in it. They were to bring back some of the fruit, and they're also to figure out which route, the route by which they should enter into this land. 
Now, their purpose was really to strengthen Israel's faith, not to cause doubt and confusion. And so here they come for 40 days. They traveled through the land of Canaan. And here we'll go back to the map here um, to show you that they didn't just go up to Hebron. They went much, much farther. So do you have that map? The next one. They went all the way from the area around the Dead Sea. There should be one more map coming up here. There we go. It's a little harder to read, but they went all the way up by the Sea of Galilee, above the Sea of Galilee, modern-day Israel, Lebanon, southern Syria. And so they were to travel there and not just find out tactical information, but to really bolster the faith of God's people by finding out the condition in that land. And so here's the initial report in chapter Numbers 13, 25 through 29. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So what details did they give in this report? They came back and told about the land. It's a bountiful land. It's fertile. It's fruitful. They even showed the fruit of the land. The people there, they said, however, the people there might have slanted the report just a bit. They're very strong. And there are different people groups living in this area. The cities are fortified and large. Now, this initial report was positive for the most part, but also be realistic. It got the people of Israel talking. Now, the facts themselves were not necessarily encouraging or discouraging, but the interpretation could be either. Israel already knew that the land of Canaan was inhabited by foreign entities. So they were going to have to dispossess them, right? The people of the land wouldn't just say, here's our land, go ahead and take it. The Lord even promised that he would send his angel ahead of them, his terror ahead of them to drive the people out. Well, this is where things get really interesting. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw there are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who had come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. So the first one to speak up and give an analysis is the minority voice, the voice of Caleb, saying, well, we already knew all this stuff about the land, about the people, about the cities. Let's go. Let's take God at his word. We are able to do it. And we'll see why later, the basis of his, um, his argument. He courageously intervenes. He encourages the people, motivates them to action with his rally cry. But the majority, most of the rest of the spies, counteract his analysis at multiple points. The people, they're too strong. 
The land is too vast. It's devouring us. And then finally, they circle back to the people of the land and use some rhetorical devices saying, these people kind of remind us of the, uh, the pre-flood giants that are in the land, these Nephilim. And so this emotionally charged identification immediately incites fear in the rest of the people. The conclusion, we're grasshoppers. I mean, compared to these giants, we are just nothing. We're little bugs crawling around on the ground. And the emotions run wild as the mob panic sets in. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, we see the response of Israel. Mob panic. Chapter 14. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the wilderness, in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing up us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here the sons of Israel demonstrate the state of their heart before God. In Deuteronomy 1 and Hebrews 3 and 4, it really talks about the fact that they are not only hard-hearted, but they are rebellious, that they are disobedient that they are unbelieving, they have a heart of unbelief, and they refuse to enter the land of rest, this land, this rest that God had prepared for them. It seemed safer to them to go with what was familiar, even though it was cruel slavery in Egypt, than to trust God to move into the unfamiliar, to journey into the land of Canaan. And as you think about what they said, these thoughts are, are blasphemous about God, right? He had made some incredible promises to bring them into this good land. And yet these people are saying, God wants to kill us in the wilderness. Most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. The minority voice speaks again in actions and words, only this time it carries more force. A few more people join the minority response. Verses, uh, chapter 14, verses 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. In humility, after hearing these words about themselves as leaders, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, but also I think they fall on their faces because they're recognizing that God's going to punish his people. There's an impending judgment coming. And Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes at these blasphemous words that Israel spoke in a demonstration of grief and distress. Then they address these points that were um, brought up in the majority report, and they go back through them one by one and say, no, that's a false report that the majority of spies gave. We want to give you the true report. The land is exceedingly good. Remember that. God promised it to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. 
God will bring us in. If he delights with us, is delighted in us, he will bring us in and give it to us. The people, we're not like grasshoppers. They are like bread for us. They're like our food. Do not fear them. The cities, they have no protection. Do not fear. What was the congregation's response? Chapter 14, verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. You see, the people had had enough. People of Israel, the congregation, they wanted to eliminate this minority voice. But God's glory intervenes with his deliverance and his judgment. There is so much more to this story than we have time for. Um, Due to their faithfulness, these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, were rewarded. They both played significant roles in Israel's possession of the land. What happened with the rest of the spies? Well, God's justice held the nation accountable for their rebellion and unbelief. And this is really brought out in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The ten spies were immediately struck with a deadly plague, and the adult generation over 20 years old and up Uh, eventually died as they and their children wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. In his mercy, God drew Moses close to intercede for the people, and he pardoned their iniquity. But only the younger generation, those 20 years old and down, would live to see the fulfillment of God's promises. So I want to ask a key question here. What led to the different report among the spies? What was it? Did they see different things? Or was there a different heart? A different perspective? Although they encountered the same sites, and basically that initial report was was generally true. There were different filters used to analyze the facts. There was a different reference point, a different focus or perspective. I've always enjoyed um, playing basketball. It's something I've, you know, done throughout my life. When I was in fourth grade, uh, I enjoyed playing basketball with my friends at recess. And on the sidelines, there was, uh, stood a fifth grade guy who was always harassing me. I would launch these shots out from way outside, and he would repeatedly call out, Mr. Longshot, Mr. Longshot, and he would say it over and over again, day after day after day. I ignored him for a while. I figured he would go away eventually. But finally, I reached a breaking point this one particular day. I chased him across the playground and finally caught up to him and I pulled him down from behind. He got up, he was sputtering, he was kind of foaming at the mouth like a psycho. I started thinking about, what did I just do? I'm usually pretty calculated, but I I don't know what's going on now. You know, I'm thinking about retaliation and I got pretty scared. But then I remembered something. I had an older brother who was in sixth grade. And he had the reputation for being a tough guy. So from then on, I walked with an air of confidence, knowing that I would be protected by someone much stronger than myself. Caleb and Joshua were men who were full of faith. They didn't deny the obstacles, the fortifications, the giants in the land, but they were focused on God, his character, his power, his presence, his promises. They were focused on what the Lord could do. And they were really concerned about how Israel talked about him. 
their relationship with him, their submission and obedience to him. They had a different spirit, Numbers says, and they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The other spies, the, the ten, the majority, they were men full of sight and reason. They were focused on themselves and their abilities and the enormity of the task. Faith brings God into the picture. Unbelief shuts him out. Faith doesn't minimize the difficulties, but views God as sufficient to handle them. So there may be those of you here today who are in constant fear, and maybe that fear is masking, it's just the tip of the iceberg, it's just masking a lot of unbelief and rebellion and disobedience to God, as it did in this situation with the congregation of Israel. From the days of the God's miraculous signs in Egypt and throughout the wilderness, they had disobeyed, they had tested God multiple times. And as a result, they missed out on the adventure of following God into his purposes for their lives. In Hebrews chapter 3, it calls attention to what happened during this time. And in that scripture in Hebrews 3, 7, it says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And really, he's using that idea of rest to talk about salvation, deliverance, being a part of those who know God and follow him. And then it says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But it calls us to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is one of those warning passages calling those who trust in Christ to persevere during difficult times. But it also calls to those who are unbelieving and disobedient and rebellious to find their rest to find their true rest in Christ. Because as we know on this side of the cross, that there are those who constantly are, are anxious and striving and never find rest because they refuse to find it in Christ himself and his salvation. Jesus died on the cross to set you free from a life of constant fear into a relationship of trust with him. And so I just encourage any of you that are here today who've been resisting and resisting and resisting and testing God to come and find your rest in him and stop fighting him and come to find that rest and that, uh, that peace and that joy in knowing Christ. But you know, as, as I've experienced, fear can also impact those of us who follow God and trust him wholeheartedly. Remember how often Jesus reminded his disciples not to fear, not to be afraid as they were learning more about who he was. So whenever we face a crisis situation, we need to look at our responses, don't we? What do we really believe about God? How, do his, how does, uh, does his character, his presence, his power, his promises factor into the equation? And for me lately, I've been just reminding myself, 
God is good. God is with me. God is leading me. And God is enabling me because he has promised. I'm a work in, in progress. I haven't mastered this area. I'm moving forward. And I just want to encourage you with that. In my current situation, it means for me bringing these fears and these doubts and these anxieties before God in prayer and asking for his help. It means being vulnerable and sharing these concerns with family and friends and being open to prayer and wise counsel. And I encourage you today, if that's, if that's your case, that you would find prayer over here at the table or with one of our elders or a friend who's brought you to just be open, be honest where you are today. And finally, it's been helpful for me to reflect on Scripture and recite it, especially the promises of God. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, a love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, who's given us everything because of his love, we can trust him. We can put our lives into his hands and know that he is good, that he is walking with us, that his power is enabling us, and that he has promised uh, that he will bring out fruit in our lives. And so I just encourage you to pray with me as we close up this time and ask God to work in us. Lord God, thank you again for your word, how precious it is to us. We recognize, Lord, that uh, we're in all different places in this room. We ask for those who are uh, still far away from you, who are rebellious and disobedient and unbelieving, God, that you would call them, that you would bring them uh, to repentance, that you would call them to a life of trusting you. And Lord, for those of us who are uh, yours, who are your children, who have trusted you for our salvation, God, that you would call us to continue to place our trust in you, especially during times that are difficult, that we would find our rest in you, that we would call upon you and ask you to work in us. God, thank you for your precious promises that are yes in Jesus Christ. And we just, uh, today, God, we ask that you would um, work in us and bring about uh, what you desire from our lives, that we would go on and live uh, in that adventure with you and experience your graciousness, your goodness. We pray these things in your name. Amen.